Our sermon text this morning is from Isaiah chapter 51, verses 1 through 16. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her thanksgiving and the voice of song. Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation. For a law will go out from me, and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. My righteousness draws near, my salvation has gone out, and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me, and for my arm they wait. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath. For the heavens vanish like smoke, the earth will wear out like a garment. And they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever. And my righteousness will never be dismayed. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings. For the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies? of the Son of Man who is made like grass, and have forgotten the Lord, your Maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth, and you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor when he sets himself to destroy. And where is the wrath of the oppressor? He who is bowed down shall speedily be released. He shall not die and go down to the pit. Neither shall his bread be lacking. I am the Lord, your God, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. And I have put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand. Establishing the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth and saying to Zion, you are my people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, give us courage to be honest with you and ourselves. Give us humility 
to truly open our ears and listen to your word. Give us trust in your character and promises. Give us hope that our sorrows and sighings shall indeed flee away when you come in justice to make all things new. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Perhaps the most vexing and indeed visceral objection to the Christian faith for modern people is the judgment of God. The idea that God might be angry at wrongdoing and exercise judgment against people, that grates against our live and let live Western sensibility that everyone really ought to be free to express their individuality by being and doing whatever they want. And the Old Testament here is particularly problematic for us. Richard Dawkins famously called God a capriciously malevolent bully. And he said that the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. And in order to prove his point, he largely focused on God's judgment. The fact that God gets angry at human sin and evil and acts to bring it to an end, that just seems barbaric to a lot of us. It seems unjustifiably callous. Many, if not most, modern folks, I think, share Dawkins' basic concern. And it's not just skeptics, is it? A lot of Christians, if we're honest with ourselves, we have questions. We have doubts. We have embarrassment about what the Bible says here. We're not quite sure what to do with the judgment of God, are we? Over the past few weeks, we have been considering as a church Isaiah's vision of God. We've been looking at who God is. And in chapter 51, Isaiah shows us the God of justice, the God who comes in judgment. The Lord of hosts is his name. That title, Lord of hosts, Yahweh Savaot, that literally means that God is the Lord of armies. He's the king and commander of the angelic armies, the hosts of heaven. And he will come in judgment against everything that opposes his perfect purposes for his world. What's interesting, though, is the way Isaiah talks about the Lord of hosts. When we hear Lord of hosts, we get uneasy. But in Isaiah 51, the promise of the Lord of hosts, the promise of the God of absolute, unrelenting justice, that's not a source of discomfort. That is a cause for rejoicing. For many of us, Christian and non-Christian alike, there is a decided gap between the way the Bible talks about God's justice and the way we instinctively feel about it. And the only way we're going to be able to begin to bridge that gap is to be honest about our questions. So I want us to consider today five objections to the judgment of God. And I want us to let Isaiah and really the rest of the Bible speak to them. Because if we do, we just might find that the justice of God is good news after all. We just might find that underneath 
our consternation about judgment. The promise of perfect justice is in fact precisely what our souls have always been longing for. Objection number one. A God who judges isn't good. A God who judges isn't good. At the heart of this objection is the idea that a God who judges must have something wrong with him. Judgment suggests some moral deficiency. If God judges people, he just doesn't seem worthy of our worship. Or to say it another way, it would be better for God to not judge. It would be better for God to not care so much about justice. I think that's a fair summary of what many of us, myself included, intuitively think or fear, uh, even if we seldom admit it. But let me ask you, do you know who doesn't think that way? People who are suffering. You know who doesn't think that way? People who are in the throes of injustice. Why? Because people suffering injustice are utterly realistic about the true state of the world. The devastation that sin wreaks and the comprehensive judgment from God that's necessary if reality is really going to be restored. They can't afford to get sentimental about the way of the world. Croatian theologian Miroslav Volf lived through the civil war in the former Yugoslavia, and he learned by experience what it means to have your city surrounded by opposing forces and shelled daily with bombs. And he brings a sufferer's perspective to the question of judgment. And he really doesn't mince words about our modern distaste for divine justice. He writes about the popular idea of divine nonviolence and the idea that God should never forcefully intervene with judgment. And here's what he says. In this belief, one can smell a bit too much of the sweet aroma of suburban ideology, entertained often by people who are neither courageous nor honest enough to reflect on the implications of terror. Now, what's he saying? He's saying that the idea that God's judgment is bad for the world is a luxury of the comfortable. It's a privilege of the secure who've never had their power and safety truly threatened. Now, we do well to reckon with just how much of our instincts about God's justice are born from the fact that you and I live in a highly curated, technologically manicured society where most of our confrontations with the chaos, injustice, and instability of the world, largely, how do they happen? They happen through digital screens. They don't happen with our own bodies. We naturally assume that everyone else's baseline experience of the world matches on to ours, where dramatic interventions of justice, that's the stuff of movies and stories, but it's seldom actually necessary in real life. But the modern Western experience, friends, is an outlier. It's the exception, not the rule in human history. Sufferers, however, people who live every day exposed and at the mercy of the voracious appetites of the violent, powerful, and unaccountable assailants, they know 
that the world needs the Lord of hosts if things are ever going to be put to right. That's why Isaiah 51 talks the way it does. The message of the Lord of hosts is comfort to the weary, joy for the downtrodden, vindication for the abused, and a source of hope for the oppressed who have suffered under the weight of a sin-filled world. Hear what he says. For the Lord comforts Zion. Joy and gladness will be found in her. The ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. He who is bowed down shall speedily be released. I am the Lord your God. The Lord of hosts is his name. We need to understand that one of the reasons the Bible sometimes pushes against our moral instincts is because the Bible is written from below. It is the word of God given to and recorded by people who have experienced life from below, on the underside. Military invasion, forced migration, slavery, war crimes, political injustice, persecution, and the constant threat of death. And when that is your experience of the world, It's no longer a question whether a good God will rise up in judgment. A good God has to. As Miroslav Volf goes on to say, a non-indignant God would be an accomplice in injustice, deception, and violence. Modern Westerners, we generally fancy ourselves open and multicultural. But if you really want to be open and multicultural, The first step is to question your own cultural assumptions and listen to what the rest of the world is saying. The weak, the marginalized, the hurting, the displaced, the terrorized, the silenced. And what will you hear? That judgment needs to come and that justice is good. And here's the thing. We naturally know this already, don't we? All you have to do is listen to what your society and your own heart are already telling you. We live in a culture that highly values tolerance, and yet we live in a storm of constant moral outrage against people who don't toe our ethical lines. At a personal level, you may intellectually think that a good God should never implement justice, but when someone harms you, or someone you love, when you're confronted with something that is undeniably evil, what happens? Our hearts scream out for someone to hold the person accountable, repair what's broken, and restore justice. Why is that? Why is there this undeniable tension between what we believe and how we react in the face of injustice? It's there because you can't actually live as if everything is tolerable. You cannot do it. You can't move through the world living as if justice doesn't matter. Isaiah 51.5 says something profoundly interesting on this point. The Lord of hosts says, The coastlands hope for me, and for my arm they wait. The arm of the Lord is a metaphor throughout the Bible for his power to break oppression and bring deliverance in justice. But Isaiah says the coastlands, who's that? The faraway places, the Gentiles who don't even know God, they hope and wait for the Lord and for his arm. How can they hope 
for the Lord of hosts and his justice when they don't even believe in him. Old Testament scholar Alec Matir says of this waiting that at a deep level, quote, such a longing for something better, a truly human life, is implicit and inarticulate in the groanings and travailings under which people live out their lives. And every single one of us is like the waiting coastlands. The inarticulate groanings and travailings of our hearts bear witness to us that deep in our souls, we want someone to arrive with justice. The implicit testimony of our hearts conflicts with the conscious philosophy of our minds, and every cell in our body yearns for a judge who can truly be trusted to bring justice. Why? Because every cell in our body is singing the song of the God who made us. And no matter how hard we try, we can never really outrun that song. Even when we intentionally believe a contradictory story, we can never really escape the story that God has written into the world and into our hearts. And Isaiah says that your inescapable desire for true and perfect justice to win, your inescapable desire for true and perfect justice to fill the earth with joy, is actually directed in a very specific direction. With the coastlands, you are hoping and waiting for the Lord of hosts. If it's true that we actually want justice, then that means that underneath our objection, we're not necessarily uncomfortable with a God who judges. We desire for some authority to judge and stop wrong. I think what we really object to, if we get down to it, is the idea of a judge who has the right to disagree with us about what true justice looks like. We want a judge, don't we? But we don't want one who has the authority to take aim at the things we wish he'd really leave alone. We desperately want justice, don't we? But we don't want someone else to be in charge of it. Because then God might tell me I have to change. I'm no longer in control of my life. My utopian vision of a righteous world doesn't dictate what God is going to do. People often claim that it's arrogant to believe that God could judge the world. But let me suggest that in fact, it's profoundly arrogant to reject God on the grounds that he might disagree with you or your culture. If you think a good God could never oppose something you value, what have you done? You've essentially deified yourself. You've rejected God because he doesn't match the reflection you see in the mirror. Because he doesn't think and evaluate reality exactly like you do. If you think a good God could never indict something that your culture prizes, what have you done? You've divinized your culture. In quite a narrow and presumptuous way, you've said, God can't possibly be good if he doesn't agree with everything my society in this tiny sliver of all of human history already believes. But just for the sake of argument, if indeed the Bible is true, if indeed there is a God of perfect justice, infinite wisdom, 
total knowledge, eternal goodness, and unimpeachable character, it stands to reason that he'll disagree with you about something. And hard as it may be to come to terms with, that really is a good thing. Because a God who always only agrees with you is almost certainly merely a product of your culture. But a God who's not the product of any culture, a God who transcends every culture, will inevitably present a profound challenge in some way to all cultures without exception. And that is what the, Bible, the God of the Bible does. Ultimately, we need a God who judges, and we need a God whose judgments don't perfectly line up with all of our biases. And that's one of the ways that we can have confidence that he really is the Lord of the cosmos, and not just a figment of my imagination. Objection number two. A God who judges is impetuous. That is, he's petty, rash, short-tempered, overreactive. There's this common sense that God must be easily triggered, too quick to jump to judgment, when a little patience seems far more reasonable. But I think you'll have a hard time making that case from the story that the Bible actually tells. At Mount Sinai, God proclaimed his identity to Moses, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Slow to anger. That's how God describes himself. And his actions throughout the Bible really do bear that out. We often think of the flood, for example, as a knee-jerk reaction. But Noah himself was 600 years old before the waters came. And God had been patient with the world. Up until it could truly be said, the earth was filled with violence. Only then does he act. We think of the conquest of Canaan as a sudden decision. But God announced to Abraham long before that Israel would have to wait centuries before God would step in and justly judge the corrupt nations in the land. The exodus is often depicted as callously brutal. But Israel had been enslaved there and mistreated for hundreds of years. Generations were born and died under the bondage of Egyptian slavery. And even then, the Lord offered ten plagues of steadily increasing severity. Ten opportunities for Pharaoh in Egypt to do the right thing before he finally exposed Pharaoh as a pretentious fraud by destroying his army in the sea and cutting off the next generation of male soldiers at the Passover. Even in Israel herself, things spiraled downward, starting with Solomon in the 900s, with idolatry and exploitation running rampant and prophet after prophet, calling the people, begging the people for repentance. But the Lord of hosts doesn't climactically judge until Assyria invades the north in 722 and Babylon takes the south in 587. Do you see the pattern there? The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger. The time scale of his justice 
often operates in generations and centuries. And the book of Isaiah bears witness to this. Isaiah begins warning Israel around 740 B.C. about judgments that are over 100 years in the future. Far from being impetuous and impatient, the God presented in the Bible is long-suffering. His patience goes far beyond what any of us would conceive as reasonable. I mean, when somebody wrongs me, my impulse is to want justice in seconds, not centuries. What about you? When I look square in the face of the incomprehensible savagery of the world, my reflexive desire is for someone to rise up, stop the madness, and make things right. When? Right now. Are you tired of injustice? I am. Do you wish that it would end? Me too. But we need to be honest about what that desire really means. It means that God is far more patient than we are. Not less. And the fact that the sun came up again this morning means that his long-suffering patience has not yet run dry. Objection three. A God who judges is a power play. Here's what I mean. There's a postmodern suspicion that any claim to truth is ultimately just a power grab. It's just a way to control people. And in line with that, some may wonder if the idea of a God who judges is a power play. I mean, if you concoct a God who judges your enemies but approves of you, what have you done? You've created a powerful mythology that positions you as the good guys, excuses your faults, and justifies your opposition to people who are different. What's it done? That has sanctified your hostility. That could admittedly be a profound theological way of propping ourselves up, demonizing outsiders, and giving divine endorsement to all of our elected battles. But that's not how God operates in the Bible. In Joshua 5... Joshua is on the edge of Canaan, about to lead Israel in to drive out the Canaanites and receive the land after many long centuries, the land that God had promised. And there he meets an angel with a sword. And Joshua asks a perfectly reasonable question. Are you for us or for our adversaries? And the angel replies, no. No. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. Now Joshua wants to know if the angel is on our side or their side. And the angel rejects the fundamental premise of the question. No, the army of the Lord and the Lord of hosts himself, they are not picking sides. The Lord of hosts has his own agenda for justice and righteousness in the world. And it doesn't involve papering over the sins of one side so that they can have victory over the other. So the question for Joshua isn't, is God on our side, but are we really on God's side? That's the vision of the Lord of hosts that we see in Isaiah as well. If you were to read through the whole book of Isaiah, you'd find that many of the most eye-popping warnings about the coming of the Lord of hosts, they aren't aimed at Israel's enemies, they're aimed at Israel themselves. 
For example, in Isaiah 5, the Lord sings a song about the vineyard he planted. He wanted to grow a beautiful vineyard with flourishing grapes for wine, but all he got was rotten fruit instead. And God explains his song. The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. God goes on to say, The Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. How does he do that? He's going to come in justice against his own people. He's going to render judgment against their oppressiveness by sending them into the oppression of exile until the Lord of hosts sees fit to restore his people as a beacon of repentant justice for the nations. Let me suggest, if all you wanted was a powerful deity to underwrite your actions and justify yourself, the God of the Bible is not the God you would invent. The Lord of hosts topples the proud and exalts the lowly. He brings low the eyes of the haughty and lifts up the head of the contrite. He cares about injustice and oppression wherever it may be found, and he refuses to turn a blind eye when people who bear his name try to cover over their wrongdoings with pious platitudes. If you want total divine endorsement, you are far better off looking to the provincial pagan gods of history. But the God of the Bible, the Lord of hosts, he's made it clear that he will not at the end of the day sit quietly by and become a mascot for oppressors and power players. The Lord of hosts isn't an Israelite power play. He's too resolutely committed to justice outside and inside Israel for that accusation to stick. But hear this, in Isaiah, the goal of God's justice goes beyond Israel as well. In Isaiah 2, God says that when the Lord of hosts brings justice, all the nations will flow to his mountain, learn to walk in his paths, and beat their swords into plowshares to study war no more. And in Isaiah 25, God promises that on his mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples, all peoples, not just Israel, all peoples, a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The Lord of hosts doesn't just judge the world, he judges Israel too. And when the Lord of hosts rises to restore Israel, he does it to bring the blessing of justice to all the outer stretches of the world. That's the vision of Isaiah and the entire Bible. Objection four. A God who judges isn't love. This may be the most profound objection that we have. Many of us sense that judgment is unloving. So a God of love can't possibly be a God who judges. 
But let me submit to you that we need to first interrogate our assumptions. Most modern people simply take it for granted. It's self-evident that love is the highest virtue. If there is a God, that God must be love. But let me ask you, where did that idea come from? Where did we get the notion that love is the center, the very heart of reality? It came from Christianity. In the ancient world, no one believed that merciful love was the meaning of history. And they certainly didn't believe that the gods of their pantheon were at the very core of their being, love. So, oh, that was foreign from all ancient belief systems. That idea only emerges with the Christian faith. So if you today find yourself living on the conviction that love is central to the universe, it really is because you've already internalized one of the unique and basic claims of Christianity. But that also means that if the claim that God is love rises from the Bible, then we ought to listen to the Bible before critiquing its God as unloving. And when we listen to the Bible, we find not a God whose judgment is opposed to his love, but a God whose judgment is an exercise of his love. The Bible tells the story of a God who loves his world and loves his creatures. It's a story that begins in the Garden of Eden, as we heard, where God's good creation is a home where he can dwell with humanity. He wants his people to delight in the peace, goodness, beauty, joy, and fullness of life in the presence of his glory. But sin, not just disobedience, but sin as misdirected love, sin as our quest to find life somewhere else that is not God, that destroys all of that. It fractures our communion with God and our capacity to experience the joy that he offers us. It decimates our peace as our insatiable soul hunger generates selfishness, fear, anxiety, competition, and conflict with other people. It corrupts God's world as individual lusts grow up into unjust systems and idolatrous cultures, filling creation with rivalry, predation, violence, and oppression rather than worship and shalom. Sin destroys the creatures and the creation that God loves. So here's the question. What does true love do when its beloved is threatened? Imagine. What would a truly loving king, a king who cherished the people of his kingdom, do in the face of a marauding army whose sole desire was to kill, pillage, and burn everything in sight? How would a loving father, a father unrelenting in his commitment to his children, act in the face of an attacker dead set on harming his precious family? If the king stood by in the name of love, if the father passively observed in the name of love, every corner of our soul would shout out, that is not what love does. That is not what love does. Love steps in for the sake of the beloved. 
The loving king intervenes for his beloved kingdom. The loving father protects his beloved children. And that's what Isaiah 51 promises. The God of love will not let his beloved kingdom, his beloved children be trampled forever. He loves his people too much to let their pain go unaddressed. And he loves his enemies too much to let their delusions and dehumanizations of others go unconfronted. Even though sin, injustice, and violence have polluted his world, the Lord is committed to restoring his creation as a home and haven of unimpeded joy between God and man. He has not given up on his world. For the Lord comforts Zion, he comforts all her waste places, and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her thanksgiving and the voice of song. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy. And sorrow and sighing shall flee away. If the beloved creation is to experience that kind of unbreakable fullness. The Lord of hosts has to drive out everything opposed to it. A God of love must judge. But as the psalmist says, if God should mark iniquities, who could stand? If God's really going to restore creation into Eden and drive away everything unfit for his perfect garden, what hope do any of us have? I look at the secret whisperings of my heart and I know I would spoil a new creation. I don't belong in the garden of the Lord. What hope do any of us have if he's truly going to renew the world? The answer that the Bible gives is ultimately the greatest evidence of God's love. Because the way to be certain that the God who judges is love is to see the judge offer himself in love to satisfy justice for you. When Jesus was teaching his disciples, he often called himself the son of man. That's a royal title. And he told them that one day, the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father to administer justice to the world. Jesus said he's the king who will lead the armies of heaven to judge sin and restore creation. What does that mean? It means that Jesus is the Lord of hosts. And yet, Jesus submitted to an unjust execution at the hands of his creatures. And at the cross, the Lord of hosts let all the wrath of heaven fall on his own shoulders. Why? So that people who, in ways big and small, have contributed to the injustice of the world, people like you and me, could have our judgment taken away and be welcomed into the kingdom of righteousness. He was driven out in death so that you and I could be swept back into Eden, the garden of the Lord. The new creation where God will dwell with man and we won't be trespassers because the Lord of hosts took justice on our behalf. He cried out under the weight of despair and sadness so that we could be ushered into a world where sighing and sorrow are checked at the door. 
When you see that the judge offered himself to take your judgment in love, then whatever questions may yet remain unsolved, you'll know that the Lord of hosts is love because he willingly took the justice that should have been aimed at you. There's nothing like that in all the history of human thought. Let's just consider our options for addressing injustice, shall we? Buddhism says that injustice is an illusion. It's not real. Hinduism says that injustice is deserved. The doctrine of karma says that any injustice you experience now is the result of your conduct in a previous life. So really, you just brought it on yourself. In Islam, injustice is measured. There's a scale at the end of days where your good deeds are weighed against your bad. But frankly, if you think about the butterfly effect that one careless act, one thoughtless word might have in the life of others and in the world, that's a pretty startling proposition, I think. Atheism says that injustice is just a construct. All truth is power. The universe has no real direction or meaning, so injustice is really just the name we assign to the things that we don't like. But Christianity, alone among all the philosophies of the world, says that there is a God who recognizes injustice. There is a God who has experienced injustice. There's a God who paid for your injustice, and there is a God who will one day end injustice. The question we have to ask is, which of those stories makes the most sense of the world as we know it? Which of those stories offers us the most compelling vision and sings in tune with what we know deep down simply has to be true? Finally, uh, objection number five. A God who judges makes people vicious. In other words, if you believe in a, a God who exercises judgment, the thinking goes, you'll become an angry, violent, judgmental person yourself. And you'll use God to justify it. But according to the Bible, that's not how this truth should work in your heart. In fact... The promise of God's judgment has the power to turn us into profoundly beautiful people characterized by humility, courage, and peace. How? If you internalize the truth of God's justice, it will utterly kill your pride. Because the cross won't let you entertain anymore the idea that your life is the paragon of righteousness. The whole message of the gospel is that when we deserved judgment, Jesus took it in our place so that we could receive not what we have deserved, but what we never could have deserved. Pride fuels so much of our dehumanization of others. You only mistreat people if you don't believe they're worthy of the respect that you demand for yourself. Pride is the oxygen that feeds the flames of our hatred, but the gospel snuffs it out with a message of grace. The truth of God's justice will drive away fear. In Isaiah 51, God says, I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man? 
In Isaiah 2, the Lord of hosts says, Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? If you know that God is going to take care of justice with perfect righteousness, wisdom, goodness, and love, though the raging of the world around you remains scary, the raging of the world is not ultimate. And that puts the raging of the world in new perspective. It relativizes our fears. Because there is a judge who presides over all the ragings of men and promises to resurrect everything that they have broken and stripped away. Even as God invites us throughout Scripture to grieve our fears and pains with him, he promises us that he will have the last word. He assures us of a hope that can animate our courage and stabilize us in an unstable world. But finally, the truth of God's justice will make us people of persevering peace. Here's the thing. If you don't believe in God's justice, then when the stakes get sufficiently high, the only option you have left is to take justice into your own hands. The only thing powerful enough to get us to relinquish the sword of human retaliation is the promise that God is going to take up the perfect sword of divine justice. Miroslav Volf says, it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die. Rather, he says, the certainty of God's just judgment at the end of history is the presupposition for the renunciation of violence in the middle of it. Do you hear what he's saying? The promise of justice is the only way that you're not going to live like a vigilante now. God says to us, I am the Lord your God. The Lord of hosts is his name. And as we entrust ourselves to the God who promises perfect justice, we will find in him a bottomless resource for persevering peace, for becoming people of humility and courage, people of beauty, while we wait upon the advent of the Lord. On his mountain, Isaiah tells us, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. And at Jesus' table, he gives us a taste of what's to come, rich food and well-aged wine. The commander of the armies of heaven gave himself to satisfy justice in love for you. So at this table, we feast on his grace even as we whisper, come quickly, Lord Jesus, and long for the day when he banishes sin and death and makes his creation that glory home of justice and love. Let's pray.